Welcome to an entertainment edition of Radio Rehab. I'm your host, Dana. If you're a KFOG listener, be sure and check our backlog. We've got over 200 episodes that you can find on iTunes or Stitcher. Today, my guests are Jacob Dylan and Andrew Slater. Jacob is in the movie Echo in the Canyon, and Andrew Slater is the director. Andrew is also somebody who's been in the music scene for a long time. He used to manage Jacob's band, The Wallflowers. I'm sure you've heard of them. He also used to be a CEO at Capitol Records, and he's a music journalist. So it's really interesting to get a chance to talk to these guys. Echo in the Canyon will not be released until June, but there is a special screening tomorrow night. That's April 20th at the Castro Theater at 8.30 p.m. as part of San Francisco International Film Festival. I expect you all to be there Unless you hate music. This movie is so centralized around not just the L.A. music scene, but kind of the start of an entire generation of music, which is a little bit before my era and which influences all the stuff that is the music that I grew up listening to in my era. I hope that makes sense. It probably doesn't because sometimes I ramble and I literally make no sense. Let's look into the interview and, and let's talk to my guests, Jacob Dylan and Andrew Slater. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. So I was I want to talk about how this project started. I saw in the movie that there's there's a movie called Model Shop, which I've never seen. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how the how that came to create this project? Well, we were we, we were sitting around as as one does at a certain point in their life, mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, and we saw this movie Model Shop, which was uh, something we'd never seen, and we saw L.A. in the film uh, and all these places that we go, that and it sort of reminded us of the time in L.A. when uh, you know when, when the music of um, the beginning of Laurel Canyon was happening. So it you know you never know what's going to inspire another idea but we saw these places and we said oh let's go back and listen to some of those songs and even though they weren't songs in the film it made us go back and look at that period and we started listening to the birds and the beach boys and the mamas and papas and we said hey maybe we should uh you know cover some of these songs and so jacob and i started pulling them out and seeing which ones were good right and then you but then how did you get into like the history of the whole thing well, I think, you know, behind every song is a story. Right. And as you dive into a song, you want to find out what the what the genesis of that idea was, and that leads you to the band, and then it leads you to the story of the band, and then it leads you to the story of the place where the band lives and where they record, and it, it just evolved from there. And it even goes back, because I was thinking, like, if you keep trying to go back, you could take it back so far, and then I notice it kind of, like... I guess goes back to Pete Seeger, since like that's kind of the folk music start, and then there was like a Pete Seeger clip in there, but then it goes it goes back like more to the birds. Well, I think it's you know it started with the idea of the electrification of folk music. I think you know California represents the idea, at least to me, that anything is possible. And I think in New York in in this in the sixties, the folk scene was very rigid. You know, people wanted to hear long songs and and stories with tellers of the tale and maybe the elect- folk music might not have been electrified maybe it would have been but california in california when roger mcguinn takes out his 12 string and transforms one you know a song from one medium to another uh that 
becomes the beginning of poetry in rock music because when the birds have a hit in 65, that is what brings everyone to California. At that time, right around that time, I think the music business was also centered in New York. And in the film, Jackson says people wanted to come out to California because this is where the labels were and it was cheap to live and you were close to nature. And I think people, when they saw that the birds had a hit, they wanted to live that dream of being in a band and, and, and having success, just like, really like the Beatles, because the birds were emulating the Beatles. Right. Yeah, and well, what you, you said about the poetry, that was my favorite part, was when David Crosby said um, it was putting good poetry on the radio for the first time. And I thought that was really cool, because, yeah, before that, it was kind of like doo-wop, which is great music, but I mean a lot of rhymey stuff. And now these people who are actually like artists and poets are putting their music to you know on the radio and and playing it with electric guitars. Yeah, and and it all, you know, it all evolves from there. I mean, I think the idea of of the birds which are multiple singers and multiple writers also also interpretive singing but uh in a band is them emulating the Beatles and then the Mamas and Papas and the Buffalo Springfield and the Beach Boys have their own internal dynamics, but that, you know, that it, that changes everything. And it also seemed like they were all fans of each other, like to find out like the Beatles were their fans, too. You know, like they were fans of the Beatles. Everybody was fans of the Beatles. and But then the Beatles liked them, too. And I found it. Uh, and then there was a the part you said 12 string. 12 string comes up so many times in this um, about the time where um, – the guy was it the guy who owns Rickenbacker or Backer? However, I know there was a whole yeah, it's Backer, right? Out. I don't want to pronounce yeah. it wrong now. Well, at least you didn't get reprimanded by Tom. Yeah, I know. I was like, yeah, at least I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you took the twelve string to bring it to John Lennon, but it actually yeah. George was the only one in the hotel room, so he's the only one. So he's the one who got it, and that changed the sound of the Beatles. Just that it changed the sound of everything. Yeah, that's not, really, that's crazy. I mean, that guitar is. You know, almost like an orchestral instrument, and and what it uh, what it what it inspired in, like you said, in the Birds and in and in the Beatles, uh, moves rock music forward. Yeah. You know, Tom Petty. You know, I think says that that's the defining moment. You know, for for him as a symbol of rock and roll. And there were all these. You know, it's because everybody liked each other so much. Everybody was such a fan of each other's music people would borrow it and then just send a note or you know they would be like i based this riff on mm. what you wrote and they would just send a note and that's, that's also part of the folk tradition that, right that's that, that pop music and rock music later that's when they all started suing each other yeah that's what i was gonna say there's no mention of like lawsuit type no because it, it was expected and you know uh, they all did that and that is a part of folk music and they were kind of exploring that for the first time but i guess they all i, mean, I think they were they were supportive and they were fans but they were also they were there was competition for sure. They, they explained that in the movie too. Yeah. But it was friendly competition. Like, I want to better that. I want to make that even better. Right. I don't know if we have much of that today. That spirit. Yeah. It's just strictly competitive. Yeah. I know. I feel but those yeah. guys were, you know, they, were, they weren't, they, I don't, maybe they didn't feel that different to one another. Whereas today, everybody seems to maybe want to stick out their own ground and, and be protective of it and, and tell you why they're different than the next guy. I don't think they were so hung up on being different than the next person then. No. Because it was the music that they were all sharing. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just something that they wanted to, like, expand on as opposed to, like, make their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
That well, yeah, I thought that was really cool. I like, and, and and when Tom Petty says like, well, straight up stealing isn't cool, but yeah. but then he references how the way they did things with the sharing back then. It's kind yeah. of the way but it was. Also, a lot of the melodies then people weren't hung up on inventing their own melodies. They were working with traditional things, and they understood that they were probably not theirs anyhow. Right. Where today, people feel ownership to melodies, which is a whole different bag. Right. But a lot of the melodies that you hear in those songs, they're vaguely kind of based on traditional things anyhow. Yeah. I mean, everything's kind of based on like something you've heard at some point, I would imagine. I don't know. I don't write music, but <laughs> I mean, I would feel like. Well, it's, yeah, there's not, there's only so many notes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now we're a long time later, but um, no, I thought they, they probably thought there was a lot they could do with those notes and those melodies. And yeah. I don't think people were so hung up on being original then. I, don't, I think that, that came later with the singer songwriters. Singer songwriters started to want to express themselves individually, but I don't think those guys were hung up on being so different from the next person. I could be wrong, but it, that's what I take from the music and that's from the movie as well. What they all said was they were all working within the same parameters and they didn't have a problem with that and there was a lot to do. Yeah. The other interesting thing about the movie, I think, are the studios and the way it's like, oh, this studio, you can get this sound mm-hmm. and this studio can get that sound. It's kind of like, you know, at Sun Records, I know that like Elvis recorded one part like in the stairwell because that's where you could get that mm-hmm. that sound and it, it's just I thought it was also really cool that they went to you know Sunset Sound they went to all the different studios to record well, Brian things. Mentions that what well, this studio is good for what and this one's you yeah know, Brian I mean look we can go into a whole thing about Brian as the architect of all of that sound and you know clearly the Beatles had George Martin who was an arranger and a producer and Brian had Brian's brain yeah and and what he says in the film is that he liked. You know, the tack piano at Sunset Sound, but he liked the echo at Gold Star, but they did the vocals at RCA. I mean, you know, one of the things about the film is that we we have worked, Jacob has worked in a lot of those rooms in, in California. It's one of the great things of being in Los Angeles that those rooms are still there. The great recording studios in New York are not there still. And the unfortunate thing is that as... Uh, as Los Angeles gets built up and Hollywood becomes developed into a much much more modern uh, and expanded place, these studios, I don't think they're going to be there in five years because somebody's going to come in and they already have said to somebody, here's $25 million. You have a single-story building on Sunset and, and Vine. Yeah. We'll give you $25 million. We'll build a hotel. And, for a banana. Yeah, for a banana. <laughs> right. That giant right. banana. And so I think our... You know, our reverence for those rooms and 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 the echo. It's really about, when you talk about Elvis and you talk about Sun and that, that stairwell, you know, it's the sound around a human voice that, that gives it the character and the depth sometimes that you hear. And, you know, the echo chamber in Capitol or the echo chamber at Sunset Sound, you know, they're, they're, they've been there a long time and they've, some of the greatest, uh, vocal performances that you know have been recorded in those rooms. I just don't think uh, anyone, the historical society, is going to save them from from development. But anyway, that's what we wanted to capture in the film. You know, the, to to see what each of those rooms looks like, because even the architecture inside is beautiful. Yeah, and it still looks the same. I know that was like some part of it. I remember being in those studios when I was a little kid. They don't, it doesn't look, and they never look different. But uh, you were talking to somebody. Forget which person it was you were talking to. Was it Michelle Phillips or Lou Adler? Lou Adler, yeah. I think it was Lou Adler, and he was saying, "Yeah, the room looks exactly the same as it did." Some of them do. Some have been changed around a bit. 
Some some could use a new couch. <laughs> right. <laughs> could swap out the carpet in a couple of them. But, um, no, but there is still for someone even like like me. I, I came up before computers and all that. There's there's something magical about going in all those rooms. Mm-hmm. We can all record at home now, but it's a big difference looking at being in those rooms. The way you feel and your, the inspiration you get from being in those rooms, not only because of all the people who were in there. You know, obviously the people we talked about, but just because the rooms have it anyway, they just feel like you go in there. It's time to make some music in here, and you don't feel the same way when you're in somebody's home studio with a computer. And right, you can you know drag up a lot of those sounds and stuff. And but the room's not helping you. The room's not really your partner in that situation. Right. But you go in those rooms, like you kind of feel like I have a really good shot here to do something great because I'm in a great room. I can feel that. Right, like you not don't feel just that way. In, you know, there. Mike's living room. You don't get that same feeling yeah you know yeah definitely what was it what was it like going back to those rooms with like michelle phillips it seemed like she hadn't been there since or she hadn't been there in a really long time because it looked she was kind of looking around like in awe of of the room and the space i mean from my perspective it was i had heard that music as a kid growing up and it created this picture in my mind of something idyllic about california so being in the room with her for me resonated you know in that way as and being around Lou who was a record maker who made stuff that I you know was admiring as as someone who eventually went on to make records it was cool I mean it's a long time ago for those people but their memory I I believe I mean surprisingly their memories were pretty good yeah I mean unless there were a million takes I was like wow that's really cool Mm mm-hmm and I love David Crosby's approach is like, oh, people will tell you a million stories about well, why I was kicked out, but it was because I'm an asshole. <laughs> like, I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Well, he said it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he said it for sure. He's very self-aware. Yes. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like it. <laughs> and Tom Petty said that the Beatles started folk rock in California in that movie. And I thought that was something that for a lot of people is going to be a new thing to hear. I hadn't really thought about that, but I could see where I could see what he meant. But I had never really thought about that before. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing for other people to look at. Younger generations. Yeah, anyway. You know, but I think that's interesting. I think it, it, it gets coined folk rock and Tom's probably right. But it's really just melodic rock is in the end as it keeps going. It may began with you know, because people like Roger McGuinn did have a background in folk music, mm-hmm. and they could play differently than other people. But very quickly afterwards, what do you, I mean, would you keep calling it? I don't. If someone played that music today, I don't know if I would call that folk rock. It's just kind of rock and it's melodic. But it was a new thing then, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, it's probably folk pop because it, it it's pop music. You know, it became popular music at that time, and so it was the blending of poetry really with uh, with the Beatles. That's that's what it is. Uh, you know, the Beatles, in a sense, I think, invented everything we like about modern rock recording. And that inspired what happened in California. And the 12-string becomes part of that attempt to record a band in that way, like they were recording in England. And that and then inspires them to do something further, which they do, which is Rubber Soul. And then Brian hears that. And he takes it further, and it's Pet Sounds. And then the Beatles hear that, and they take it further, and it's Sgt. Pepper. And that's really what the film is about. It's about, you know, the echo of people's creativity between each other and across the world, and ultimately across time. Because if you look at Jacob's record 
Wallflower's record or a Beck record, Sea Change or, or a Fiona Apple record. There's elements of, of all of those things, you know, folk rock, the Beatles, and the Beach Boys in, in all their music. And, and I don't know, it was something that seemed obvious to me and that I had never really written about, heard about it or read about that. So that's why we kind of, that's what we found as we went down the road of looking into the songs. It just opened up that pathway. And those are the people who are performing the songs. I think it's so perfect because it's like I'm looking at like, you know, Fiona Apple and Cat Power and even back, you know, I'm going, God, they totally could have been singers back then. They, they totally could have been a folk singer back then. They were perfect for it. Like, I thought I, th- I think the people. How did you pick the people is what I was going to ask? Cause they were... Well, the, um, the people of my generation in the film. Were you talking mm-hmm, about yes. the, um, well, I think we. First, it was very organic, really. We know all those people, and we've had conversations with them about this music, and, and they're all, they all have a close association to California, Southern California. Um, I mean, we could there's a lot of people we could have... I mean, we could have grabbed a whole bunch of people, I imagine, if they were interested, but these, these are friends of ours. Names came up, and we'll just start... It seemed like a good idea to start organically. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. We didn't have to call anybody. They could look for someone's number because they. Said, right, right. We, we didn't want to. Didn't need to. You know. Yeah, just friends making music. Yeah, and then also in a sense, one of the ideas was to try to take the narrative of some of those songs and turn them into a dialogue between two people. You know, when you listen to "Never My Love" or "Expecting to Fly," those songs are sung originally by you know, by a single male voice or a bunch of male voices. And when you take the lyric apart and it becomes a kind of, it becomes a conversation between Jacob and Regina mm-hmm. or, you know, Jacob and Nora, uh, it just seemed like a nice way to interpret the song uh, rather than just have the singular voice tell you the story. Yeah. I think I think even Michelle Phillips said something about that she, when she was listening to the song. She was like, God, that was a really good song because I think she was she was inspired by hearing it again and done with two people, it seemed like. Well, I think if you listen to the original Go Where You Want to Go, I think the, the cadence of the vocal <clears throat> is that kind of 60s optimism up with people kind of you know they're singing you know you know go where you wanna go and it's it it has that thing and the interpretation that uh jacob and jade give it is it's i don't know it's a little it's it's more modern in one sense and and um and just changes it slightly so seeing her react to it was really a great a great moment in the film and having her tell the story of what was behind it was really cool because it's like you said, it was just this seemed like this cheerful 60s song. I didn't know <laughs> that that's what it was about or that it had that kind of, you know, a little bit of a dark story behind it. I don't I think we all kind of learned that on the spot a little bit. Right? <laughs> uh, but it's very direct, actually. It's not the song is like right on the right on the button. Yeah. When she tells the story. Yeah. Like that's like, oh, that makes sense. That that's what it's yeah. about. And that, that's the first song that the Mamas and Papas ever released. That's their it first is? single. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, December of '65, I think. So that that. So where's the part where they all got along great? <laughs> I know that's like, I'm like they, wait, that was the beginning. I guess it sounds like most groups actually. <laughs> the, everything was like um, kind of more collaborative back then with multiple singers. Um, 
there wasn't so much the whole lead singer vibe and then the this guy vibe. It was kind of like everything was more of a collaboration like back then. And that's another reason I liked the way it was done, you know, when you guys read, I don't want to say redid, but when you guys perform these songs, mm-hmm. not redid. Yeah. That's true, right? I mean, they, they, that, but this, I guess that's, that's part of what the movie is touching on is that right after this is, this this moment that we're talking about is when it ends. That is the beginning of the singer songwriter, right? And the less inclusive and, um, it, but it is interesting that there are certainly were people before them that were doing it alone, but they they seem to it's they seem to naturally want to be with other writers and singers. And one plus one is three. That seemed to make sense to people mm-hmm. before it no longer did, maybe because it, right. it, it, it very quickly it goes with you know in the movie with Neil leaving to do expecting to fly. That's not the beginning of the singer-songwriter, but that's when these really powerful guys seem to have gained the confidence of, like, I don't need to be around other guys. I can do it myself or girls. Right. I can be my own. I, I even think that at that moment, people were all trying to do something great. And it wasn't about it wasn't about California solipsism. It wasn't about I, me, mine. It wasn't about how do I, how do I make the most money. You know, maybe people were competitive, but... You know, it was in the beginning. And also probably Lou said at, at one point, which is not in the film, he said, you know, also the the drugs changed. It, yeah. It went from, you know, drugs that made you happy to drugs that made you paranoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was the one part about Brian Wilson and, and the speed. I like remember that part, but yeah. Other than that, it's not it's not a whole like drug movie or anything. Because I thought, because whenever I, I think of um, Brian Wilson or Pet Sounds, or then when she started to tell the story about how there was nothing but a piano sitting on sand when 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 they came into the house, I was expecting to hear something like that. But it's like you don't really need all that backstory. So I mean, that was fine. But yeah, you can tell with any kind of era of music that the drugs change things, even in jazz. Like even like listening to Miles Davis's career. It's like, you know, there are certain parts where it's like way too much cocaine and it's too hard to listen to. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I don't, I don't know and I can't comment on the specifics of all, any of that. But, I, but uh, I love that period and I love the innocence of that period and that's what sort of drew us to make the movie focus there. And it's Tom Petty's last interview, right? Well, that's we believe that. We think we've been told that. I mean, I, I don't. I've already seen that kind of put out a few places that there's something, there's some kind of hook to that. There really isn't. I mean, I, I, I know he did tour diaries because he had his tour after that, but uh, we're not aware of him sitting down and speaking to anybody on camera, and no one has said so, but um, that's, you know, unfortunately that is true. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's a great way to hear him. It's great to hear him talking about those things. Like, if, that, that, if it is his last interview and the last we get to hear him talk, it's great to hear him talk about talk so casually about coming yeah, from maybe, Florida. Yeah, and, maybe instead of, you know, him talking about his own career so much. Yeah. Like he was a teenager in this film, right? his excitement, you know. And if you're a big music fan, you know, you do know that, that the music you listen to when you're that age, like, you, you kind of always like it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's it always strikes a chord. And it's always powerful. Yeah, and that there's a really small window of a couple of years that that's true. And for Tom, obviously, that must be true. I mean, he says so, but yeah. he's the only one. I mean, when he's put on that that Rickenbacker in the mid late seventies, like he's the only one doing that. Yeah, you don't find other record covers of cool bands or acts playing Sunburst Rickenbackers. Right. But he just he was that must be the teenager in him that was still like, no, this is cool. This is Roger McGuinn played this and. um 
it was, I, that's nice, I think, for us to, to I mean, I know sitting with him, I mean, I don't know how much time he was prepared to be there, but he he was just really in a good mood and happy to be there yeah. in a guitar shop with a lot of cool equipment, you know. And I'm glad that I'm glad that I was a part of that with him, and I'm glad that he he was able to do that. He can't just walk into a guitar store normally and yeah. check out the gear. So yeah, you know, he's incredibly generous to us, and it was really nice to 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 be with him, being so excited talking about that music that he really that I, I I relate so much. I get asked a lot about the groups that I mentioned so many years ago that I liked and. You know, I don't necessarily listen to them anymore, but the impact they had is still the same to me. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's not nostalgia. It's just that the way you receive music that age, you really I don't believe you ever really can again. There's just too much right. in your brain afterwards. You have this perfect moment of like, I don't know, 14 to 16, where it's perfect. Yeah. And then all other stuff starts happening. And yeah. you still find new music, but it just doesn't hit the same way. Yeah, I know. So, I so agree. That for Tom, this was the music that was true of. Yeah, like hearing what hearing him talk about like the shows he went to and saying his mind was blown. It's like mm. that's Tom Petty, who a lot of people look up to and want to play like. And here's mm. what here's him feeling like that about somebody else. Yeah. So yeah, that was really like a special part of the movie. I think For that's sure. really cool. The whole movie is special, though. I love it. My favorite is the way I I feel like multiple people use the word cross pollinization. <laughs> And I like I like that, and I like the way you know we were talking about how that was part of the folk culture and things were borrowed back then. But it was it's really cool to just see how everything was like mixed together. I think also though you, you get to see the human side of all the people that are in the film, and partly because they're talking to Jacob and they're not talking to a professional interviewer, right? Uh, a journalist, uh, and so that's it. You get to see the the intimacy of one generation of an artist talking to another, which is Jacob. And then you get to see them talking about their contemporaries in a very unguarded way, which people don't always see. Contemporary documentary filmmaking is is so sophisticated now, and they, you can make so many layers out of so many things and just use a voiceover to tell you the story while you look at layers of footage. For me, as an ex-journalist setting out to do this, I I never was able to, because probably because I wasn't a very good writer, but I was never really <laughs> able to, to convey on paper what I was seeing and hearing in people's faces when I talked to them. So the idea of putting these guys on camera and letting them tell you these personal stories and trying to stay in the moment with them was a very conscious thing, and, and I think it... It lets you like eavesdrop on something that's that's personal. Yeah, it did. That was that was like the coolest part about it is getting to hear all those people talking about personal stuff, including. So there's this one part where David Crosby, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, says bands evolve and then they devolve, and then it's turn on their smoke machines and play your hits. Uh, what did he mean by that? Because you in the movie when you're interviewing him, you had a funny reaction to that. I was curious. I'm like, was he saying that about all bands? What did he mean? No, I think I think he's. Or the, I think he's his being, era. I don't know that he's totally right. Right. But he's mostly right. Yeah. I mean, even the ones that we do like who do have 20, 30 year careers, there's always an apex where they were at their best. It's just oh, yeah. unfortunately true. And they might have moments later, one little thing might come through and you go, that's as good as the old stuff. But that's true of most things. You yeah. can't ride that way for too long, especially when you have giant writers like he had in those groups and egos get involved and what I think what he's saying is that I, I mean I know what he's saying is his standards are so high that if it can't be that all the time he just doesn't want to do it 
Yeah. Uh, maybe he's had to tell himself to believe that because he has a hard time getting along with people. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know what he, I think he's totally right. Yeah. Because what, you know, and when he says it's not good enough, it's not good enough, meaning he's probably spent the last 50 years having carrots dangled in front of him all the time to just get along with so-and-so, make up with so-and-so, so that yeah. you guys can all go out and make a bunch of money. And he's probably taken those opportunities at times and arrived at a place where he's saying, it's just, a, no, no more. Right. You know, I don't want to, I'm not going to be tempted anymore by that because I want to only be a part of things that are excellent. Yeah. You know, we use it also in the film in a way to let you know that that the era of the band thing is is ending, you know, because the film does really ju- just focus on that thing about being in a band and and why it devolves, you know, or, or how they feel about that. And and he's very articulate and very self-aware, David. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm happy he, he was honest enough to say that about Me the, too. the notion yeah. of being in a band. Yeah. So the Orpheum show in L.A., is that, maybe will that tour or go to other cities or? You know, I think what we'll do <laughs> is we'll wait and see what people's reaction is to it. Okay. You know, I mean, well, movie's not out just yet. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a possibility. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it if nobody's coming. Well, so yeah. We'll I like the movie. Of course. You know? So uh, the screening is happening tomorrow night. We're going to be sending some lucky people to the screening. And um, and there's going to be a performance uh, at the Castro Theater, right? Correct. And who's that? That's you and... Uh, that's myself and the band that you see in the movie. Really? Yeah. And we've got, well, J- Jade, she, she's in the movie. It's it's the band you see and Jade who sings... Uh, she's Where amazing. Do you go? Yeah, she's yeah, incredible. she's so good. She'll be up singing. Um, a short set. But, um, yeah, it's going to... I think it'll be... But there'll be songs... For, uh, there'll be songs from the era that are not in the film that they know. Oh, really? Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we the full concert that we did in L.A. a few years ago, not all the songs were able to be in the film. Yeah. And um, But the, the, there's stuff from the time, and they still make sense. We just couldn't necessarily find a way to get everything into the film following the narrative of how it developed. So it'll be songs from the film and some other ones. You know, anything else you want to hear, you let me know. Oh, okay, I definitely will. I will. Well, never my love is what I want to hear. I love okay. that. I always forget how amazing that song is until I yeah. hear it. I'm like, that's like the best song ever. You know, with that song, I think everybody sang that song that, that came in, with the exception of Beck uh, and maybe Regina. We have a version with like everyone. Really? Yeah. It was like we well, we would just put out a record of Never My Love. You should. Uh, I love, would listen yeah, to it. I know. Well, we have a 18 version different with, versions of one song. We do have yep. a version with Fiona singing it. We have a version with Cat Power singing it, with Nora singing it. You want to sing it? I'm terrible There's singer. Room. I'm. <laughs> I can play drums a little. <laughs> we'll do. Yeah, we can do a drum version. Okay, right. awesome. Yeah, I can do a drum solo. <laughs> Never my love. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Hopefully, becoming a tour. You know, coming back here. I'm sure if it does, San Francisco will be on the map. I think that the film is going to be here, uh, opening first week of June. Right. So the film will be in theaters at that point. 
So we're gonna have to wait till then for people to then go, hey, we want this to be a, a touring show that we get to see, and then it'll be at the Fillmore. Let the people I've speak. decided yeah. it's gonna be the Let Fillmore. Let the people speak. I'm a people, and I want okay. it at the Fillmore. <laughs> well, how big we need? Like, how many more are you? Like, what, how big's the Fillmore? It's a bunch. It's you pretty big. Find, like, With just you in it. We'll yeah. Like, oh yeah, that would. It's like we'll go back talking about that natural reverb again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You like reverb? Just me, yeah. Me just me and my cats like yeah. in the front. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show and. And I'm really looking forward to tomorrow night. Cool. Well, thanks for having us here. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Jacob Dylan and Andrew Slater for being on the show today. Remember to go see Echo in the Canyon tomorrow night at the Castro Theater, 8.30 p.m. If you like music, I expect to see you there. For more information, go to sffilm.org, where you can watch the trailer and buy tickets. If you would like to contact us, it's Radio Rehab at gotoproductions.com. You can call or text 415-496-9511, even when we're not in studio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's at Radio Rehab Dana. Thanks for listening. Keep coming back. Mm-hmm.